0: A meal, for some, is simply food to ingest. For others, it is a time to connect with friends and family. But for Jesus, it was an occasion to demonstrate the character of God in surprising ways. It was in the context of a meal that Jesus showed us his heart while others sat around a table with him. You're invited to pull up a chair and prepare to experience Jesus, the dinner guest, sitting across the table as you witness the extraordinary. Because when Jesus came to dinner, it was always more than a meal. All right, how are we doing today? Good to see you. Happy Sunday morning to you. Um, my name is Todd Arnett. I'm the lead pastor here at Trinity Church. I want you to obviously recognize as you came in today, today is a little bit different. We don't usually have a beautifully decorated table in the middle of our worship center. And you'll notice even too, our decor team did a great job, added some chairs to the back wall. All of this screams the idea that you are welcomed, that everyone is welcome to the table. And we're excited today to look into God's word together. You catch us today on week four of a series called More Than a Meal. And we've been walking through the book of Luke. What we've seen every week is that there are two main things that are always there. And that is Jesus and food. Those are great things, in my opinion. I want to spend a lot of time in those environments. And what is different, though, is every time the situation is different and what's going on and and what Jesus is going to do or share is different as well. And so today we're excited to look at another one of these examples in the Gospel of Luke. So if you have a Bible today, we're in the book of Luke. Luke is the third book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And in Luke 14, if you find your way there, that's where where you're going to be. Also today in your Trinity this week, you got one of these yellow sheets that has our notes. If you want to get those out, you'll notice that the notes are a little skimpy this week. And that's primarily because I was putting this message together while I was at a conference. So what that means is you just have more room to write in wonderful things of your own. So it'll be great. So uh, I appreciate uh, even just so much Sherry and all she does for me, but especially doing those things from afar. And that's what we were working on this week. I have some, some hard news this morning I wanted to share with you as a church family that our dear friend and brother Mike Lawrence passed away this morning. So, very, very hard um, on so many fronts. And um, it was just powerful when you think about, it was just this last weekend, a week ago today, that Rachel and John, uh, his son and daughter-in-law, were on this stage being commissioned for ministry um, around the world. And um, I'm just so... Um, there's so much about that loss that for this church is so very, very hard. And I just want to express to you a couple things to kind of keep us keep us in the right posture. First is this, is that when you think of Mike, you think of an amazing leader. You think of an amazing husband and father. You think of an amazing person who not only loved Jesus, but desperately wanted other people to love him too. Not just people here in Southern California, but people around the world. And it is, I wouldn't even use the word ironic, I would say it's beautiful today that our direction of where we are going, that was literally planned months ago, aligns with the very day of his home going. And we are going to talk about the heart of God today, the heart of God who loves the world And it couldn't be more aligned with Mike's love for people and his love for them to know the gospel. But another thing is true as well. We get to live out in real time what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. They were confused, didn't understand what happens after believers die. And he wrote these words that resonate within us that we definitely not just hear today, but we live, that we don't mourn like those who have no hope. But watch this. It doesn't say we don't mourn. That is very appropriate. It is very appropriate to stop and just process what is indeed our loss. But I will tell you with the greatest confidence of which I could say anything today, Mike has never been better off than he is right now. There is no doubt in my mind. And that's what makes that such an ability to shed tears because of the way that we will miss Mike. Mike but not because of anything that Mike is facing. He is absolutely receiving the goal, the end game of his faith is to be with the Lord. We believe very much from the word of God that he is there today. And it's really out of an event that we are going to celebrate in a couple weeks that we have that confidence. Allison reminded you about our services coming up on Good Friday and Easter and it is because of Jesus' resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, it's because of Jesus' conquering of death that now death has no sting. And we are not to fear it, those who have put our faith in Jesus, because Jesus has gone before us, conquering it once for all. So we believe that for Mike, but we believe that for us as well. So let me transition the thought for just a moment. By the way, before I forget, In real time, we didn't have this information first service, but it looks as though very much that we are going to get to celebrate Mike's life next Saturday right here at 10 in the morning. We'll get more information out this week, but that's the tentative pretty close to what we're gonna, I think, land on time for his service. We'd love for you to be there. Let's talk a little bit about Easter, Easter morning. What we have elected to do this year is we've elected to keep our same three service times. You'll actually note on your card, first service starts a little earlier at 7.45, but if we do that, this service and second service are going to be packed beyond ability to see people. It's just what we anticipate and it's what was true last year. So we want to do something that I think would be helpful to all of us. I'm here right now to sell you on the 7.45 a.m. service, <laughs> okay? That is my job. By the way, it was funny, last year, this time, I was just trying to push this service either direction. We had a wonderful surprise. The... the the most attended service last year Easter was not this one, but the 1115. We had no chairs. People were standing. It was crazy. It was great, but crazy. It was great for everyone who got to sit, right? And and not for others. So we're trying to avoid that. So let me, let me say it to you this way. How many of you grew up in some sort of an environment where you went to what we call a sunrise service, an Easter sunrise service? Okay. Now, now hold your hands up. Give up Now, now watch this. So did I. Watch this. If you come to the 745 service, (laughs) it's like sleeping in, (laughs) right? I mean, usually those start about 6 a.m. You're going to be like, hey, I'm going to the sunrise service, but like I'm sleeping in, I don't have to be there until 745. It's awesome. I promise you the sun will have risen, and therefore we can have a sunrise service at 745. So we'd love for that. Here's the other thing that people have not thought of. I think one of the best parts of Easter is this, but obviously Jesus raising from the dead trumps everything. But second, well, maybe even deeper than second is what I like to call Easter brunch. Here's the deal. If you come at 745, you're going to be in the front line of every Easter brunch in this area. (laughs) How great is that? All the lazy Joes who went to church later, they're going to have to wait in line. You're going to be sitting there going, this is great, 7.45, 7.45, Easter Sunday. Join us. We're going to have an awesome time. We're going to pack that service. I'm going to see you there. You're going to look at me like, Todd, I'm first in line for brunch. It's going to be good. So join us a couple of weeks from now, and that'll be awesome. Well, here's where we're at today. I want to ask you a question as we kind of jump into our text. Every, we said every one of these places that Jesus has interacted with people in our series has been different. He started in Zacchaeus' home. Zacchaeus was a loathed tax collector. Everybody hated him. Then we find him actually not really in a home, but in a remote place feeding thousands of people from one lunch. And then we find him last week in the home of two sisters named Mary and Martha. So today, a different environment altogether. We find find Jesus in a Pharisee's home. A Pharisee was the highest level of religious leader in the Jewish faith in the first century. So this man had his act together. He would have been seen as the type who was the most moral, the most law-abiding, the most righteous type of person on the planet. That's who Jesus had a meal with in the text we're going to be looking at today. And interestingly enough, as we connect this dot, I'll, I'll do this for you in a second, we will see this. But let me relate it to an odd thing. Let me see by a show of hands, how many of us would say that probably, well, let's say first that when you think back to your years in junior high, right, your years in middle school, like you guys, it was like forever ago, right? At least like three years ago, right? So think back, think back to your years in junior high and raise your hand if this is true. How many of you would say probably one of the most difficult social times in my life? How many of us would agree? Keep them up. Keep them up. One of the most difficult social times in your life. Okay, great. Thank you. Now, I I expected as much as probably almost half of us would have raised our hand in that moment. And and when you think back to junior high, the reason why it was so hard, so challenging socially is because there was this interesting mentality of being in or being out. And those of us who raised our hands would have been on the out crowd. Okay, no (laughs) doubt about it. And here's how the mentality worked, is that there was basically a very small group of people who socially ruled this landscape, a group of people who basically everyone wanted to be like, everyone wanted to be accepted by, but the reason why it created this chasm is because they let very few people into their circle. So it created this supply and demand dilemma and the relationship was, everyone wanted to be in that group, but they would only allow a few. Sound familiar? That's what it was. Maybe for some of you who didn't raise your hand, it's because you were the people everyone wanted to be like. I don't know. It sure wasn't me. That's for sure. Here's the interesting thing I was thinking about in preparing for today. So though I would have easily said, yeah, those were very socially challenging times, really tough um, uh, seasons in my life. The interesting thing is, as much as I would raise my hand and say that's true, I can think of numerous times when I did the same thing. I moved the middle of my eighth grade year and went up to a beautiful town in Central California, Santa Maria. I lived for Santa Maria, in Santa Maria just for a little over a year. It was an interesting time that God uniquely pulled us away and brought us back And it was in that time, though, I remember I moved at Christmas break. So I moved when there's no school in session. I'm going to go to a local junior high. I've never gone to public school before. And so I'm going to start that. And and two doors down from me is a neighbor, and his name is David. And David is a great guy. David is very kind. I moved in, and, and he made no short time to come over and introduce himself We liked sports, played uh, football out on the street together, and just even in these two weeks, we began to get pretty close, and it was a huge help to know that he went to the same junior high I was going to go to, and I had at least one friend in tow. But as I got to school, I got to Orkut Junior High, I remember getting on the campus, and within a short amount of time, realizing that David wasn't nearly as socially esteemed as many on campus. And over the course of the next few months, David and my relationship began to pull apart, not because of David, but because of me. And I was looking for friends who could do something for me. I was looking for friends who would establish me socially. I was looking for friends who I could feel like I was on the inside. And because David wasn't, David didn't get a whole lot of time. I was only there for a year. We were neighbors that whole time. Once we got into high school, I didn't even see David at our homes in our neighborhood or at school. And you could have said it was just because we lived in different social circles. It was really because I just basically said David was too low on the social totem pole for me to spend time with. These are harsh words. They're very honest words, and I hate saying them because it was how I rolled. But it's interesting Not only would I say I was, quote, a victim of that social way of relating to people, but I was the same one to other people. And the reality is what we're looking at today, it's almost as though this text was written for that mentality. And if you could sum up everything Jesus is going to say really in about this many words, grow up. And the way that you treat people grow up and get out of that junior high mentality, thinking of people as a commodity, thinking of people as a means to an end rather than simply loving them the way that God loves you. That's what Jesus is gonna lay on the table for us today. I'm excited to dive into it, excited to see what we're going to uncover. Um, Look at our now what statement today. It's this, include outcasts rather than use people for your own benefit. This is the summary idea and what we're supposed to do with today's message. Include outcasts rather than use people for your own benefit. Let's dial in. Number one in your notes. The difference between being humiliated and being humble is based on where you choose to sit. The difference between being humiliated and being humble is based on where you choose to sit. Let me tell you what I mean by that. You're in Luke chapter 14. I'm going to read verse 1, but then skip to verse 7. This is how it goes. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, so not just any Pharisee, but one of of definite prominence, he was being carefully watched. This happened all the time in the Gospels. They're always trying to set Jesus up to look for ways he's going to fail. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your guests. Watch this. Verse 11. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. All right, let's take a look at this first portion of our text today. I want to show you, when you think of our table, looking at this table in the room, You think of this, this would be a little different to understand than the table in the first century. So take a look at this picture. This is more of a realization of what a first century meal would have looked like. The table, as you'll know, is very low to the ground. It's probably about two feet off the ground. I was in Dubai two years ago, and I remember having a meal at a restaurant that served this way. This is very true still today, 2,000 years later, to how some people in the Middle East would eat a meal. So the table's two feet off the ground, and you'll notice that it's in kind of a U-shape, right? One head table and then two sides. And then you'll notice that people are not sitting really in a chair. They're actually sitting with their feet under them or behind them, and they're leaning on a left shoulder, on a, I'm sorry, left elbow, and they're eating with their right hand. That would be a very typical meal. When people walked into the room, when people walked, when Jesus and his disciples walked into the, what would be the last supper, this Passover meal, it would have looked something like this. And this would have been the same way that this meal that Jesus encountered with the Pharisee and his guests would have been as well. So here's how it goes. Now that we have a visual, let's kind of walk through what Jesus is saying. Imagine that you're this guy, okay? Okay. You're that guy there, and imagine that you sat down, the head of the the host of the party is right next to you. He's the man in the the white, and he's invited everyone to this party, and then as you're sitting there, and you think you've got this prominent position, you've got his ear, maybe there's stuff you've been meaning to talk to him about, maybe there's a business deal you want to get him on board with, but all of a sudden, you realize that another more prominent person has come to the party a person that this guy actually wanted to spend time with. So what does he do? Take a look at the next slide. He moves you down to the end. Now, he doesn't just say move over one and displace a few people. He just simply says, go down to the end of the table and find your place there with the people no one wants to talk to, okay? Okay. So basically, that's what's gonna happen. So then you can understand now what Jesus is saying. People would have totally understood this word picture because that's what the meal, they're literally sitting at a meal and Jesus is saying, don't take the prominent seat, take the lowly seat and let your host move you up rather than being humiliated and being asked to move down. Now that's the the thing, and I call that just great, what I'd call proverbial wisdom. On how to approach social settings. Take the lesser seat and be asked to move up rather than the prominent seat and be asked to be moved down. But it's the last line of what we just read that I really think communicates the heart of everything that we're going to look at today. See it again, verse 11. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is how the kingdom works, This is how the kingdom that Jesus came, King Jesus came to offer, how it works. You take a position of humility and let God lift you up rather than take a position of prominence and be humbled. That's how it goes. We are to assume a position of, quote, dismissing our reliance upon ourselves. Now, that may seem a little bit familiar because it's the exact definition we gave a couple weeks ago to the word humility. Remember Jesus feeding the 5,000, one of those there, one of those holding a basket after basket being filled from a lunch, one lunch was a guy named Peter. Peter would later on say to other believers in the first century, he'd tell them these words from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. We'll look at verse 6 again today. Take a look at this. What's fascinating is we mentioned this passage two weeks ago, and we're still alluding to it. We looked at it last week. One of those same words, casting all of our cares upon him, was in last week's message with Mary and Martha. Now we see this again. Humble yourselves. Therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. That word that we just read in Luke 14, 11 about being humble, that's the same Greek word. Humble yourselves. And then we also said that you might be exalted. That's the same Greek word. He may lift you up. So 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7 is, is having a lot more play within the series than I ever intended it to, but it keeps coming up because it has the same words. Peter's saying, this is how the kingdom works. Dismiss your reliance upon yourself. <clears throat> Dismiss the way that you can manipulate people, the way you can manipulate circumstances, the way that you can manipulate situations. Stop Doing that and allow, allow God to lift you up. Rather than you looking out for number one, allow God in the right season and time to elevate you. That's a kingdom principle and Jesus lays that out. This is the way that the kingdom of God works. That we want to replace that old junior high social manipulation strategy with a behavior that relies upon God and allows him to lift you up in his way and at his timing. So another way of saying, related to this first point, stop living like an insecure junior hire, trying to surround yourself with people who can do something for you, and instead dismiss that reliance upon yourself and reliance on them, and instead place your reliance upon the Lord. By the way, if you think back, there was probably at least one person in your social circles in that junior high era who seemed not to care. I remember one. Just seemed to be above it all. Seemed to not get in the fray, seemed to not worry about his or her social standing. And if you think about it, you remember admiring them. I wish I didn't care. And by the way, they just didn't, it wasn't just that they didn't care. They loved and accepted people no matter where they were at in the social strata. Guess what? They were living out the heart of God, even in junior high. Great lessons for us today. Number two in your notes, you demonstrate the heart of God when you include people who can't repay you. You demonstrate the heart of God when you include, intentionally include, people who cannot repay you. Continue on to verse 12. Then Jesus said to his host, the prominent Pharisee, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's not condemning the fact that you would have a party, a feast, and invite your friends and family. What he is saying is, don't make that the consistent guest list of inviting people who in turn, what? Will invite you back. There's a way of social repayment. What you can do for me, I can do for you and vice versa. Don't look at the world through that lens socially of what other people can do for you. Instead, invite people in who can't do anything for you, who cannot repay the favor, who you would never think could do something for your social standing, who could never do anything for your career, who could never do anything for your finances. Because guess what? It takes away all illusion, all wondering and motivation of why they're even in your home. Instead, we gladly invite in people who can't do anything, quote, anything for us, except for the fact that they're people that we get to love, people that we get to give away to, people that we get to show the heart of God. I could say a lot to you on this passage, this part of it, but I really just wanna tell you about a time when I saw this so completely lived out. Right out of college, I taught at a Christian school for a couple of years. And I had the privilege of being able to teach the senior Bible class. Now, I was 21, and I was teaching seniors who were 18. So that was a little bit weird. Now that I look back on it, I watch them on Facebook, and they're like a couple years younger than I am. And I'm like, man, they were my student they've got more kids than I do and they're in careers and the whole business. And so it's just a weird thing. But I was very blessed to get to teach that class. And I'll never forget, it was my second year teaching. I had a group of seniors. And within that class, there was a girl who was the the daughter of the school's principal. Now, this daughter had done just an amazing job, not just academically, but really showing the heart of God throughout her high school career. Never perfect, no one is, but really had done a good job. And and was not full of herself, was not using that place of privilege. My mom's in charge, none of that stuff. But the thing that I really noticed, it wasn't just that attitude, it was what she did. Her junior year, a a girl transferred into this school. I didn't have juniors in my class, so I didn't have much of a connection. I just knew this girl transferred in, and this girl was very challenging. Now, physically, she wasn't the blind, the lame, the crippled, the poor, but socially, she was. Socially, when she got into circles very quickly, kids were like, eh, I'm going to go this way. And high school students that are here right now, you realize as you process that you were already putting names and faces to who I'm talking about. Just someone that was just really hard to be around. That's who this young lady was. So their junior year, I wasn't really much in connection with either of them, but then I had them as seniors. And as I had them as seniors, I remember watching towards the beginning of that year where this other girl was pretty much socially ostracized. I wouldn't say hated, but definitely not included. And it was this girl, this girl who was at the top of her game, this girl who both academically, spiritually, socially was incredibly desired and wanted people wanted to be around her. She's the one who seeks this other one out. It would be at lunchtime that they would be walking around the field. No one wanted to spend time with this other girl, but the principal's daughter would. It would be at school events and activities that she would be the one who'd be connected to her. And I watched, I watched that diligently and thoughtfully thinking, number one, I never did that in high school. I just found friends who would help me. But she was setting aside all of her desires to somehow have someone help her and she laid that aside to help someone else it was a pure giving relationship the other girl really benefited from it my friend that i'm talking to you about this principal's daughter would not only go on to bible college but would ultimately serve for many years in closed countries as a missionary she was already demonstrating the heart of god her senior year just simply more of what she would be doing later on this is what this passage is saying Rather than using people for what I can get from the relationship, I give to people. Why? Because that's how God treats me. Hear this very clearly today. You don't bring anything to the table that God needs. You don't bring anything to the table that God's just like, I'm so happy you finally came because of what you brought him. He's overjoyed that you came because he's going to accept you as a son or daughter. But not because of something you can do for him. This is the heart of God. And so when we love people the way that God loves us, what does it say in Ephesians 5? Imitate, be imitators therefore of God's love. Live and love the way that God has lived and loved towards us. James, the half-brother of Jesus, he would say something very powerful similarly to first-century believers. Look at James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes c- comes in also. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? In essence, what is James saying? Stop relating to people like a junior hire. Stop judging people on what they're wearing, what they're not wearing. Stop judging people on what they can do for you and instead embrace everyone, especially those who have nothing that they can repay you with. This is the heart of God. Isn't it interesting that James goes on to say, by the way, James is not talking about a hypothetical situation. This was happening. This was happening in the first century church, just like it happens in the 21st century church. We can easily get into the same grooves and rhythms of just going, hey, someone new comes through the door, I wonder what they can do for me versus someone comes through the door that can't do anything for me. How do I respond? This idea, what we're talking about might be the reason you're not just here today, but you're here through this whole series is to grab hold of the heart of God. That he loves us in such a way that we're to imitate, that we're to mimic and love others in like fashion. It's true at Trinity Church, and it's true at every other church. There are always going to be marginalized people, when I say that, marginalized from the culture's perspective, who end up in our gatherings. And why is that? Because we're all drawn to the love of God a love that does not have prominence, a love that doesn't have the sense of, sense of posturing, a love that what is, is true because God so loved the world. And so what I would say is this. If you're here today and you, if you're just gonna honestly look in the mirror and go, you know what? If I'm really honest with myself, I love a lot like a junior hire does. I look at people and what they can do for me. I wanna stop that. I want to stop leveraging relationships and people for that good instead. I want to look at people through the lens at which God looks at me. And guess guess where it begins? It begins just like Jesus said very simply, invite them into your home. High school students, invite them into your circles. And if your circle says kind of interested in hanging out, leave the circle. Then go be like my friend Because that's where love really hits the road. By the way, an unbelieving world around us can't get this. Because that's how we would normally in our flesh, we would love. We'd love people who love us. Didn't Jesus say that? Jesus said, what good is it if you love people who love you? Everybody does that. That's nothing new. But be like the heart of God when you love people who hate you. Be like the heart of God in this passage when you love people who can't repay you. That's when we show an upside-down kind of love, a love that our world can't understand, but a world that God has offered to us. And when we do that, we will break this mold, we'll break the way we have lived and loved maybe our whole lives, embracing God's approach. Start with the little things. Invite people into your world, into your home, into your circles, and show them the kindness of God that he has shown you. Finally today, number three, the extent of God's invitation means that there are no outcasts. The extent of God's invitation means that there are no outcasts. Verse 15, when one of those at the table with him heard this, heard Jesus give this previous parable, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. We'll unpack that statement in a moment. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Let's unpack this. The statement is made around the table that really is the trigger, it's the context for Jesus' story. Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. This kind of comment was one that very much related to the idea of blessed are the Jews. Blessed are God's chosen unique people who will be with him seated at the feast in the kingdom of God. That was the context. When everyone around the table heard that statement, that's what they heard him say. So, Jesus, like Jesus so wonderfully does, is going to say, I'm going to give you a better understanding of what you're saying. And he shares with them this story. Now, when he shares about this feast and how this invitation is going to be extended to others, I think there's a part of it that is understandably confusing. Let me, let me tell you what I, I, I'm hoping you're confused by because I was. The confusing part might be this. If Jesus loves everyone, as we're following the story if Jesus loves everyone, then why weren't the other groups of people, the poor, the blind, the lame, the, the crippled, wh- those who are out on the country roads, why weren't they initially invited in? Right? Why are they an afterthought? Like I invited this group, they all tell me no, so now I'm gonna go invite the outcasts. That, that seems a little contrary to what we've just said. Let me help you with that because I think that's a fair confusion that I had as well going into this. A couple things. First off, multiple times in the New Testament when Jesus is sharing parables, he will set it up by saying things like this. If even a a brutal judge will give grace and leniency to a widow who begs him day in and day out for justice, how much more then? Even you who are sinful parents who love your kids, how much more then will God love? So he's using these contrasts. Jesus begins with something people can understand. And they can understand that there was a feast that was going to be held. And all kinds of people were invited. Let's walk through that. All kinds of people were invited. In the first century, people would have been given, quote, a heads up that this feast is being prepared. There might not have been like an actual day and time, but then that's the second invitation was when his servant went out and said, hey, the feast is finally ready. And notice what it said in the text. Everyone, all of them had an excuse and couldn't come. And did you think about their excuses? I just bought a field. What's going to happen to the field tomorrow? <laughs> Is it going to drastically change from Monday to Tuesday? I don't think so. And I think the, the master of the ceremonies completely understood this. Another one, I just got five yoke of oxen. I want to try them out. Five yoke of oxen today would be a John Deere tractor. Okay? Okay. <laughs> I just got a new tractor, I really want it. Really? You can't play with the tractor tomorrow? Like this is a banquet, this is a feast. A lot of work, a lot of energy, a lot of preparation, a lot of food has gone into this and you're gonna tell me no because you wanna look at ground and try out your tractor. You get it, those are dumb excuses. I just got married, great celebrate with us. That's not an exclusionary reason not to come to a banquet. So all of these excuses are poor. And out of it, this understandably, and this is what I want you to walk through this logic. What people hearing what Jesus were saying could totally relate to the host. Why? Because they would have done the same thing. I've just put in all this energy, all this effort, I have all this food. It's not going to go uneaten. So what would you and I do? The same thing. We'd invite out, invite in everybody. And by the way, when we invite the poor, when we invite the cripple, when we invite the blind, when we invite the lame, they don't get invited to parties often. They're not gonna tell me no. The servant sends for them, they come in, and then there's still room. So in that area, they've they've populated the party with locals. Now the master of ceremony says, now let's reach out to the outer edges, people who are just literally traveling through and on the highways, let's invite them in as well. I think the people on the one hand, just through that lens could have totally related to that. I would have probably done the same. I don't want all the food to go to waste. we, We are having a party for a reason. Let's have festivities. But watch this, that's not the heart of God. While people could have been able to relate theoretically to this idea, here was the real problem. Remember, they were at a Pharisee's home. And the Jewish people, especially Pharisees, had come to understand that God really loved them and probably not anyone else. They really got it wrong. God was crystal clear about his unique relationship with the people of Israel. He said this to Abram, Uh, Abram, the father of the Jewish nation, when he was not even with children, he had not even had a child yet. God is promising to make him into a nation. He wasn't even living in what is modern day Israel, what would have been Canaan. He's still on the other side of the Euphrates. It's then that God says in Genesis 12, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you And I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Watch this. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God said to the forefather of the entire Jewish nation, all the world will be blessed through you. He didn't say, you are my special people that I love and love only. Didn't say it from the beginning, never said it through later. I love in Deuteronomy 4, God lays out as the children of Israel are about ready to go into the land. He says to them, as you live out my commands, and as a result, as I bless your obedience, the nations will come and see who I am, and they will want to know what God loves you. If you build it, they will come. That's kind of the idea from Deuteronomy 4 never really got lived out. And so the people around Jesus's table, now that they're hearing on this idea of this, what this host would have done, they're, what they're hearing is absolutely contradictory to what they believe. And they're hearing that they, the ones who they thought were the only ones invited to the party, they all rejected. They're rejecting in real time Jesus sitting at their table And Jesus is helping them to see, but all have been invited. They were never outcasts, they were never leftovers. They were always people my heart was after. For God so loved the world. Some of you are here today, and you've been waiting to hear this. You've been waiting to hear that God loves you so much and that you've been invited to become his. The invitation of the gospel is quite straightforward. And I believe very deeply that nobody comes to God because all of a sudden they just choose to. Ephesians 2 says that we were all spiritually dead, but it's God who's waking us up. It's God who's doing something inside of us and moving us to want to respond to him. So, today you have a rich opportunity to respond. We talk at Trinity Church every week about the ABCs. A is to admit, to admit that you're a sinner who needs a savior. Now, that word sinner can be really harsh in our culture. That's almost one of those taboo words we don't use. Here's really what the word means in your life, you've missed the mark. And when you understand that, biblically speaking, you're a sinner, you just understand, welcome to the rest of us. There's not a person on this planet who hasn't failed to live out the life that God designed for us. That, by nature, is sin. That, by nature, puts us in the category of being sinners. Therefore, there's a problem in the relationship with the holy God. And by the way, I'm pretty sure I didn't even need to tell you that. That you're a sinner. You knew it before you walked in. Be is believe, believe that Jesus is the only savior available. This Jesus that we've heard from today, he lived a sinless life. I didn't say he lived a good life or lived a moral life. He lived a sinless life, never having one sin. And that created the opportunity for him to be the atoning sacrifice, the one of a kind sacrifice that could take away the sin of the world. So Jesus died a sacrificial death. And thirdly, this idea of choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I recognize how much you love me. I recognize how much I need you. Jesus, I choose today to follow you. You've left for me an example in your book. I want to live life your way. You can make that decision today. And, and you could tell everything about today is a little different. We don't normally have chairs on the back wall. We don't normally have a set table in the middle. A video that we wanted to show you today that we really think connects the dots so well of this message, the heart of God to being that for every one of us, that we are all welcome to the table. This is what I want you to watch, and I'll tell you what we're going to do next after that. Take a look.
1: looking in this is where grace begins we were hungry we were thirsty with nothing left to give oh the shape that we were in and just when all hope seemed lost
0: thought that video did such an amazing job capturing the heartbeat of this passage that you are invited to this table here's how we're going to close our service today is that there are really one of two options for you there's two types of tables to come to the first is one that we engage often and for good reason it's the communion table This common union that we have is because we're unified in the person of Christ. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so the the elements of the communion table represent Jesus' body broken and his blood spilt so that we could become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, he takes on our sin. Jesus became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That great exchange is what happened when we placed our faith and what Jesus had done for us. So you'll notice it's a little different today. We have five tables set up around the room. And in a moment when we dismiss you, we're gonna dismiss you to go to one of those tables to receive those elements of bread and cup and then to bring them back to your chairs. I'm gonna ask when you go to do that if you'd use the outside lanes going this direction. And and we're gonna do a nice long song So I'd even say, don't worry about bunching up and making big lines. Just just take a turn and watch other people go and then take your turn. When you come back to your seat, I'm going to ask you over the course of the song that we'll be singing to receive those elements with the person you're sitting near. Maybe you're not sitting near anyone. Huddle up with someone else. Catch this. We're not going to bring us all back together and receive the elements at once so you need to do that during the song. I did not elaborate on that clearly enough last service. And when we are all done, they so still looking, what's he gonna do this? So that's when we're gonna do it, is during the song, you'll receive those elements, come back to your chairs, receive them with someone you came with, someone sitting near you, and we'll receive them in that way. It'll be rich. Jesus said, do this. And as long as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Paul wrote that about Jesus's last words. But you'll notice that we have another table as well, a table that has been especially set for today. And just like the song said, the song was all about responding to this great invitation of the gospel. If you're here today and you've never made that decision, we couldn't be more clear that this table is for you. And if you're saying, Todd, I've just been waiting to be asked, I'm asking, I'm inviting And not for anything of me, but for all of Jesus and what he did for you. There'll be people here that will just be available to you, and they would love to pray with you as you pray those ABCs, that first response to Jesus. This table is here, and it's for you. Engage it during this time, and it will change your life. There is no doubt about it. We're going to do that, receiving elements at the communion table, coming to this table for prayer. And then at the end of the song, I'll pull us all back together. I'm really glad you're here today. I'm really glad I was here today. What a great day to celebrate this table that God has made available to us. As you leave today, this table is still open. If you would like prayer for anything, We'd love to pray with you. We normally do that up front. We're doing that right here today. Please don't leave this place if you need someone to lift you up to the Lord without coming and getting a chance for these folks to pray for you. Otherwise, we hope you have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.